0: live. Hello, welcome back. I'd like to welcome everybody to episode six of Scuba Obsessed.
1: Uh, this is Darren. And I'm Jim. And you're, you're on Scuba Obsessed. Uh, this week, uh, uh, what we'd
2: like
0: everybody to do is if you could head off onto our website, go to www.scubaobsess.com, take a look around, uh, also click on the forms, get in there. We're, not, we're on iTunes. If you get over that website, you can click over to iTunes.
2: We'd certainly appreciate any five-star reviews you'd be willing to put in. Uh, you know, I guess I'd even accept a four-star review or so. Uh, if you're up at 9 on Thursday nights, you can log on to TalkShoe at TalkShoe.com or show ID 73759. You can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, the You can follow the main Scuba Obsessed account at Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson on Twitter, D-A-R-R-I-N-J-I-L-O-S-O-N, and Jim is Jake Kleeman, J-K-L-I-E-M-A-N-N. Uh, uh, this week we have a special guest. We have author Craig Rich. How you doing tonight, Craig? You know you're the first person to introduce me that way. As, a, as an author? That's right. <laughs> is, is this your first book that you, you're publishing? It really is. Uh, so, so what interests you in uh, writing the book? You know, somebody asked me the other day um, when they heard about this book that I that I wrote. Uh, when did you start writing this? And to be honest with them, I had to sit back and think, and I said, you know, I think it was 1994 when I sat down and began designing my own web page I was like I think customer number 24 for our local area free net and you know with with the $20 a year or whatever you spent back then um, I got a free web page and I thought well I should put something in there and I happen to be a a scuba diver so I put in some genealogy information and a little bit about me and then I did a whole page on on scuba diving and and local shipwrecks uh, here in the Holland Michigan area and uh wrote a story about the ironsides and, and about a couple of other ships that i kind of dreamed about finding one day like the alpina the andaste the chicora and uh kind of went to a into a personal web page and I just sort of sat there for five or ten years and um really i started working on this book uh, in really in depth about uh five years ago started just collecting things that webpage I ended up turning into the uh, webpage for a nonprofit group that we started in 2001 called Michigan Shipwreck Research Associates, which is a 501c3. And I just kept collecting stories and and finding out more information and did a big data dump and said, you know, I could turn a lot of this into a book. And uh, and that's what I did. Well, that's great. Uh, What kind of research did you do to prepare for the book? Well, you know, if I was going to give somebody else some uh, counsel about uh, how to write a book, uh, I could tell you all the things I did wrong. And the biggest one of those is to simply, you know, sort of grab information, just go to the library, sit down at the old uh, microfish machine or microfilm, and, uh, you know, start making photocopies and and, and, you know, don't worry about if the name of the paper is on the sheet or if, you, if it has any kind of a date you can read. Just shove it in a three-ring binder, which is what I was doing all through the, the 90s and into the early 2000s. Uh, and, you know, I didn't write anything down. So And on a website, you kind of don't need to do that. You know, you know, I went to the Bowling Green State University website. After asking them for permission uh, and did a lot of copying and pasting of uh, images and photos out of their archives, Sort of a low-res versions and low-resolution versions. The same with um, the uh, Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Now that that's online, um, I got permission to use some of those images and built the MSRA website. Uh, But when I went to you know start putting everything into a book, I would look at it and say, "Where did I hear that? Where did I read that? And where did I come up with that?" So I had to do a lot of backtracking and and sort of tracing my uh, my footsteps and came up with a pretty decent set of uh, footnotes and a bibliography as best I could. But i tell you what, uh, I'll say when I write my next book because I already have a couple of ideas in place. Uh, I'm going to do a whole lot better job. This one, by the way, is called for those in peril shipwrecks of Ottawa County, Michigan.
1: Now Craig is, is uh, we look at some of the excerpts from the book uh, You were talking about the the large amounts of data and uh, information that you collected, and it's overwhelming to me just to sit down and read it, Um, just the vast numbers of maritime accidents or shipwrecks just on the west coast of Michigan, and specifically the subject of your book. who would have thought that we had that kind of a history in our area?
2: Well, that's the, that's the neat thing. And just about every port around the Great Lakes, I don't care if it's the, you know, the uh, upper area of Minnesota, down around Wisconsin, Michigan, throughout uh, the provinces of Canada, specifically Ontario and over, of course, into the New York and Ohio areas, every port has the same volume of, of ship mishaps. Now, what I, I decided early on in this book that instead of just picking out six or seven, you know, big stories and really developing these narratives where you kind of have to put words into people's mouths and, you know, the captain was startled when he saw blah, blah, blah. I I didn't sure, not, this is not a work of fiction, but I decided to be absolutely inclusive, Not, not to the point of being mundane. I don't, I don't have too many little stories in there about a ship that you know sort of sank at the dock. And they pumped it out. And it sealed off the next day, but I get close to that because I wanted to be very inclusive. So going back to about 1840, and specifically looking at the ports of Holland, Michigan, and Grand Haven, Michigan, um, I really tried to chronicle just about every uh, disaster, if you will, whether it was a fire, whether it was an explosion, whether it was a sinking, a grounding. Um, a ship that turned turtle and, and the crew disappeared or just sailed off into oblivion. And uh, almost all of them happened off the shores of Ottawa County or the ships were leaving Holland or Grand Haven or on their way to Holland or Grand Haven when they disappeared. Mm-hmm. So I tried to be real inclusive. And uh, I think there's, I really haven't counted, but I believe there's over a hundred uh, different uh, marine disasters, maritime disasters, just for those two ports. So if you take that and extrapolate it to up and down my side of the lake here, you've got, you know, Saugatuck and South Haven and St. Joe, Benton Harbor, and then up north of us, you've got Muskegon and uh, Whitehall and Pentwater and Ludington and, you know, it goes on and on. And every one of those ports is a book waiting to be written.
1: And and as you talk about some of those things, um, it's amazing to me the number of ships that that were raised or recovered uh, back in those days to go on and, and live again for several more years at least. Um, I didn't know that they had the technology to do that uh, back at that time.
3: Uh, you know, that it's really unbelievable.
1: Was common.
2: It's unbelievable. There, there was a company, and hopefully some of your listeners will know this Read Wrecking Service, which, um, in fact, there was a great book written probably about 40 or 50 years ago now. Um, I think it's called The Salvager, and it's all about, uh, I believe his name was Tom Reed. And that company went all over the Great Lakes and used technology that, you know, even today we'd say, wow, I mean, you know, you and I use a lift bag maybe to recover somebody's snowmobile. But imagine something that's a couple of hundred feet long that they're literally saying, I think we can raise this. And whether it involves, you know, bags of air or pontoons or, uh you know, somehow getting getting something buoyant inside these wrecks and actually lifting them or pumping them out and getting them to sail again. It's just an amazing thing. And I think they were doing it 100 years ago.
1: Right, right. And and being able to have, have something that was usable at the time. You know, it wasn't just a uh, uh, recovery of the cargo. It was, it was to be able to use that hull again. Um, and another thing that was amazing to me is that a lot of those wrecks uh, in that area, a lot of them were fatal and and disastrous that way, but there were an awful lot of them where there, nobody was lost. Uh, And that's amazing to me.
2: I tell you what, it's uh, there are a couple books that have been written over the years about the life-saving service um, and uh, about the U S coast guard. And when you go back and look at some of the, just the tremendous stories of these guys, I mean, you know, the motto was they had to go out and nobody said they had to come back and by gosh, you know, when boats got in trouble, whether it was a, you know, a big steel freighter that was, uh, you know, grounded on the, uh, the sand dunes or the, uh, uh you know, the, the, the sand that, that kind of filled in these channels back in the day, or whether it was a, a small schooner back in the 1830s or forties or fifties, there was always somebody, it seems, whether it was an official group of lifesavers or the coast guard later, or just, you know, people who would get together and try to save the people that were on these ships because that was the mode of transportation back then. Even before, you know, the railroads became, um, you know, real uh, proliferated uh, throughout the Great Lakes, you know, the ships were already taking people around. And, uh, you know, most people who live in the Great Lakes had arrived here by ship if they came in the 30s, 40s, and 50s of the 1800s. So I think everybody knew that, uh, you know, when a ship was in trouble, you did what you could to save them. And I'm just amazed at some of the stories. That then uh, you look at the story of the Ironsides, where you know the ship tried to get into harbor in Grand Haven back in 1873 uh, three or four times, and the captain basically um, you know missed the channel each time and ran it up onto the, uh, the sandbar, and finally decided that the ship was going to go down. They launched all the the lifeboats, they all got away safely, and you go yay. Uh, What a great thing. Well, minutes later, these lifeboats, as they were coming in, these huge waves were just buffeting them, and they got thrown up on the beach. Mm -hmm. They were turned over. All these passengers that thought they were safe by getting away from that sinking ship were thrown into the waves. What did the people of Grand Haven do? By God, they got out there in the water up to their armpits, linked their arms together, forming a human chain, sweeping up survivors and hanging on to each other and helping these people to get to shore and probably saved half the people that would have gone down otherwise. It's just a, those kinds of stories are just, uh, you know, they're too good not to have told. So that's why I put them in your the books. Yeah. really they were.
1: You know, that's amazing. And, and I hate to have the answer to that if it were to happen today, if that would, if that would occur. Um, and you were talking about the water travel. What for us is a, uh, 30 or 45 minute, uh, trip up, uh, 31 or 94, uh, people would get on a ferry and run up or down the coast. Uh, and that was the, the, the transportation of the day. Um, and it wasn't uncommon, was it for, uh, men and sons to follow in their footsteps? Was that, uh, was that a common thing to see on so you could have family members on a ship serving on a ship, not as passengers, but as crew?
2: You know, that's, that's one of the things that I've actually thought about a lot. When you look at a story like the, the story of the Chikora, of course, which is still the, one of the greatest enigmas on the Great Lakes. I mean, just sailed in off into oblivion. Um, the captain of that ship, it was the middle of January. The ship was put away for the winter, and the the, uh, the you know the customer in Wisconsin said, "Could you come over and get one more cargo of winter wheat?" Well, they went over, and the captain needed to round up a crew. Who did he recruit as the first mate? His son. And and there's two generations of a prominent family in the St. Joe Benton Harbor area who never came back. And when you take that, and you take it to a city the size of, of uh, South Haven or Grand Haven, or even a Holland back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, and think that, you know, these towns sometimes lost 20 or 30 crew members, and they were all somebody's father, somebody's son, somebody's husband, and it was all men back then. I mean, every now and then there would be, you know, somebody's wife would be on the ship, perhaps, you know, just keeping them company or or maybe serving as cook to the crew if it was a a family-owned type of ship, but it was mostly men back then. And an entire community could just be devastated. I mean, your family tree just chopped short right there. There, you know, there were children left fatherless, there were women left, um, widowed. And it just turned, changed the course of an entire community when a major disaster like that happened. What is it that about the great lakes in this period of time that caused so many wrecks? Was it the way ships were made or is it just the hazards or just sheer statistics and numbers you know when you look back it's ha- almost hard to imagine uh, a port like uh, milwaukee or chicago to literally be there in the 18 say 60s 70s when the communities were, were growing and booming and the lumber trade was going and the you know the fur trade at that time had pretty much died out um and you would literally see up to, you know, hundreds of sailing vessels, schooners, masts sticking up, two and three masts schooners, literally hundreds. You could almost walk across the harbors on them. So sheer numbers had a lot to do with it. But on top of that, uh, you had these literally, I mean, compared to today, small boats made out of wood, some of them 60 to maybe 120 feet long is sort of the, the range for a, a standard schooner you'd have a, you know, maybe a six or eight or 10 man crew depending on the size of a vessel. And inevitably, when the season began to wane, uh, November, even October, you know, they'd always want to squeeze one more trip out of it. They'd want to get one more cargo across the lake and, you know, they'd, they'd leave on a fairly decent day and three hours later, you know how Michigan is just, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes and it'll change. And out on the water, it's even worse than that. You've all been out there on charter boats and on your own dive boats and, and you just keep an eye on that horizon the whole time. And I think that was a part of it too. A little bit of greed maybe, but you know, this is how they made their living. One thing I noticed uh, looking through some of the articles was that in many cases, the value of what they were carrying was, was almost as much as the value of the boat. <laughs> Very true. Um, uh, and age was another part of why these vessels sank. Um, you know, they'd run them until they sank, or they'd run them until, uh, uh, until they had to just put them aside and let them sit somewhere and, and rot. That's why there are so many ship carcasses. If you go up the grand uh, river in grand Haven on a low water season, like last summer, you can literally see bones sticking, not human bones, but I mean, ship bones, ribs, and, uh, and keelson sticking up out of the, the muck in the side of the river. And some of them were just left there to rot. I mean, part of the city is probably built on the bones of old old sailing vessels and, and even some old wood steamers. So, um, yeah, having the uh, having the ships get older and trying to get one more season out of them. Uh, a few of them were written about after the accident. They'd say, you know, she was a worthless old uh, leaking hulk of a ship. And it's like, well, maybe they should have retired her last year. And this wouldn't have happened, but you know that's that's human nature, I guess. Do any of those wrecks stick out as maybe the the circumstances? You know, everybody got off safely, but the the boat sunk for mysterious reasons. Well, there's an interesting story in the book about uh, a ship called the Manastee, which is uh, it actually was. It was we're at the dock at Johnston Boiler Works in Ferriesburg, Michigan, which is uh, right there on the uh, on the Grand River. And you can actually go to Johnston Boiler Works today. They still work on boilers. Um, and the ship caught on fire at the dock. The crew was aboard. Um, they were rousted by uh, two of the crew members who noticed the blaze. They started fighting the fire. They got themselves burned a bit. And then the ship actually began to uh, uh, catch the dock on fire. So they cut the lines, the boat started drifting, and it drifted across and down the lake, and everybody got off, but this huge ship um, ended up over at uh, a place called Savage Point, and on our website, the uh, michiganshipwrecks.org website, you can see that we did a survey on it a couple of years ago, where we went out with a... uh, Uh, not a side scan sonar, but the uh, kind of sonar that goes around in a circle. I can't remember what they call it now, but uh, it did a a real detailed um, uh, view of what that ship looks like. It's only about 20 or 30 feet from the point there at Savage Landing. And uh, it still looks like a ship. It's shaped like a ship. It's all underwater. In fact, right at the bow, there's a, there's some chunks of metal sticking up out of the water, and usually the people who live right there, I mean, literally it's 50 feet off their, their lawn, um, they usually tie some flags on there to make sure nobody runs into it. And, uh, and here's this big steamer sitting there. I mean, it burned to the water line, but back in the 70s, I've heard stories from, uh, if you know who Bob Underhill is, uh, Kalamazoo area tech diver, uh, great videographer and, and photographer underwater, he used to dive that back in the 70s, and he said it was like diving razor blades. That uh, that wreck was so sharp and so full of jagged metal that it would rip your wetsuit right off your body. Well, I believe it. Yeah. We've seen some similar situations.
1: That's that's amazing. When we were talking about why so many uh, shipwrecks went on, I was looking, and I don't remember... Uh, if it was on the Ironsides uh, wreck or not, were the owner supplied um, coffins or caskets for those who didn't have any for the for those lost in the maybe I've got that mixed up, but is part of it that maybe they didn't have a whole lot to lose besides the cargo that they were willing to risk it for that last trip across? Yeah, you
2: know the Ironsides was uh, September, so it really was you know not when we would expect the horrible storms. They were probably well within you know nobody made any foolish decisions or anything, but um, yeah, the the community I think came forth and made sure that all of the uh, the passengers uh, from the Ironsides were. I think the the newspaper said they were properly coffined, which is an interesting way to put it, but that's that's how they wrote back then. And the interesting thing is um, there's a a cemetery in um, Grand Haven uh, to to this day. It's the Lake Forest Cemetery. It's the biggest one in Grand Haven. And it had just been um, built in 1873. And the first person buried in um, in that cemetery, the New Lake Forest Cemetery, in September of 1873 was Jeremiah Smith of Grand Haven, who was drowned when he was thrown from a lifeboat uh, off the side. So a great little piece of history there on the local level.
1: So these, these lives are intertwined with these disasters. You can't get away from it, can you, in these in these port towns?
2: Well, you know what? The, the wrecks are just wet wood. I mean, the wrecks are just pieces right. of metal. And, and behind every one of them is a story. And behind the story are real people like you and me who frankly were Family. just trying to do their jobs, you know, and it was a dangerous job back then, especially, I mean, people who serve on the lakes today, give them credit. I mean, they, they, they work hard and they have a dangerous job too. I mean, we've lost vessels in the last 30 years or so look at the Fitzgerald and, and, and so on. Um, but it doesn't happen like it used to um, safety measures and radar and weather prediction and, um, you know, radio, You have even, I mean, since radio, we've hardly had any shipwrecks on the great lakes, except for the ones in the, you know, the huge, huge storms. Right. But, uh, these people were just trying to do their jobs or if they were passengers, they were just trying to get from one place to another, living their daily lives. just like you and I get in the car every day and drive to work.
1: Wow. That is something. What, uh, is, is uh, we're tied into the scuba. Uh, What thing would you suggest people do or what would you recommend for those people who would like to see bits of this history um, that still remain? Um, We've touched on a couple. I know the Ironsides is still down there um, and is is a pretty good site, but that's a little bit more of an advanced dive. Are there any of these that are more of an intermediate or a beginner level where people can go out and, and just maybe kind of get a feeling for the size and the scope? Uh, and appreciate what, what they really look like?
2: Well, that's the interesting thing about, uh, I was in the uh, the organizational committee for the Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve back in the late 90s. And one of the reasons the that we split off, our group split off to become Michigan Shipwreck Research Associates is that by state rule, the uh, uh, preserves could only go out to the 130-foot depth level and we decided that there wasn't a whole lot in 130 feet uh, which is you know the recreational scuba um, limits um, the Ironsides is but it, ironically it's uh, north of the Southwest Michigan underwater preserve it's up in the area of Grand Haven and off Michigan we've got one of the greatest tech diving uh, new dive sites that MSRA located back about five years ago and that's the SS Michigan um, phenomenal tech dive that I may never see. I'm pretty much a recreational diver and I, 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 I do own doubles and I use Poseidon regs and I've had a dry suit for since, you know, 1990, a couple of them, <laughs> um, right. the warm out, but, um, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I don't do that uh wetsuit stuff anymore like you guys, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've seen some of that video, but the, um, you know, the, uh, the wrecks are, are, are pretty much deep out in this neck of the woods. The Ironside is probably the most diveable, most interesting wreck off Ottawa County that you can dive on on air with a single tank, and I'd recommend a 100 or 120 uh, cubic you know, tank on your back and, and some good regs. that wouldn't do it with something built to, you know, to dive in the Bahamas. But the Ironside is a, is a great wreck. Now, I've got to tell you, I've been diving it since 1989 uh diver doug welsh and i uh sort of rediscovered it i think other people had too but nobody used to tell anybody anything uh, about where the wrecks were everybody (laughs) everybody hid them you know and and frankly you know let me take an aside here because michigan shipwreck research associates has changed that we are the one group that and granted there's a few others now in, in wisconsin and so on and uh and even dave trotter has given up the location of a lot of his wrecks but when we find it Um, We're a nonprofit. We're not doing it with our own money. We're doing it with donations and with um, grant money. But when we find these shipwrecks, we document them. We do everything we can to uh, make sure that we know what's down there and that uh, the authorities know what's down there, and then we usually produce some sort of a documentary or a video that we can use to educate and to enlighten people about our underwater resources, and then we give up the numbers to, um, to the dive community. And every shipwreck that we've found so far, the numbers have been made public and frankly, with the uh, Hennepin, the Akeley, and the SS Michigan that we've located off of Ottawa and Allegan counties here in West Michigan, we have turned single-handedly, and I will you know take credit for this, with our group, we've turned the southeastern Lake Michigan area into a tech diving mecca.
1: Yeah, there's it's uh, there, there's so many possibilities in our area. Um, when I took my open water and things like that, it was initially, I didn't realize the history that went up and down the coastline here on our side of the state. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in, in reading your book, the, the excerpt from the, your book and, and taking a look at uh, org and, and things like that, there are just so many out there. And there's a lot to find, aren't there? I, I mean, you haven't found them all yet, right?
2: no not at all there's so many You look in the book and uh i mean the john b moran is is incredible it's a, it's a ship every bit as big as the ss michigan and it's still out there somewhere off of muskegon or grand haven and uh you know i give us sometime in the next decade we'll be finding the john b moran i'm i'm excited about that one because the story is very similar to the ss michigan it um it was holed or crushed or something by the ice the crew was taken off they were ferried into into port they were all saved and the ship sank when everybody had turned their back and let it go behind them and you know it's nobody took notes (laughs) it's they just don't know where it is and that is a big ship i mean it's just a beautiful 200 some odd feet ship and just uh waiting to be found and if it's not us it'll be the next generation you know we're all in our forties and fifties. Um, you know, the, the MSRA board is, uh, Jack and Valerie, Van he's, uh, everybody knows Valerie. She's been involved in this stuff since, uh, she was a, a young girl and she still is. Um, and Ross Richardson, <laughs> Ross is one of my dive buddies. Uh, a couple of years ago, he moved up to Lake Ann, Michigan to get away from me, but, uh, I still go up and dive with him every now and then. Great. And then, uh, Jeff Reynolds here in West Michigan, another, uh, non-diver who's on our board. But uh, it's it's a pretty small organization with about a hundred members that uh, that frankly has done some pretty cool stuff and we're real proud of it and this book sort of launched out of that organization so I you know I have to give them kudos and uh, and just for anybody who's wondering what we're talking about I mean it is called uh, for those in peril shipwrecks of Ottawa County Michigan I've never written a book before in my life this is my first it's actually been picked up by a publisher it's at the printer right now as we record this on uh, February 11th and they tell me it's going to be in the bookstores before March one. And, uh, I can't wait. Um, the distributor, which is a company out of hope, Michigan has picked it up and they, uh, they bought 120 copies already and they're going to put it in bookstores. And they say that the bookstores have already ordered about 40 or 45 copies. So I'm excited about that. And on, uh, on my website Craig rich.net I've had about 30 orders via PayPal so the pre-orders are going pretty well I mean this is not going to be a you know any kind of million-seller book but if I sell all 750 copies that I ordered in my first printing I'll be pretty happy with that because that's a good start well certainly it's definitely going to be a book that's going to be interested anybody who who likes shipwrecks or history uh, or diving now in the book uh, what type of pictures would somebody expect to see? Well, I've got some great historic photos of about uh, about 40 of the ships, I think, and uh, ships like the Ironside, the SS Michigan, the Hennepin, the Alpina, and so on, some of the big ones, and also some of the real obscure um, ships uh, like the Jesse Martin, which was a beautiful uh, uh, little schooner that um, there's a picture of in the book. There's also pictures of a few people and, um, you know, a uh, few maps and things like that, but uh, really kind of focused on the stories. Uh, did uh, end up getting all the high-res images of uh, of those ships, both from Bowling Green State University and from uh, uh, Pat Labattie's collection, which is a phenomenal collection of historical material available at the uh, Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary and the Alpena uh, County Library up there. So uh, quite a few photos. And uh, i tell you what I didn't do. I'm a diver. You're a diver, but I didn't make this a book for divers, um, kind of on purpose. I wanted it to make it a local history book, and I wanted it to be a shipwreck book. The every, almost every vessel that's in here that's that's findable or diveable, it's already on the uh, MichiganShipwrecks.org uh, website, and the uh, lats and lungs are all right there for anybody who's got a GPS to just plug it in and go dive them. Um, We've even got a map on our uh, website, uh, which loosely kind of positions each wreck. You can click on the the, uh, uh, little name of the ship. Um, It's a tab called Diving at the top of the page, up in the blue area there. You can't miss it. And uh, the map has uh, coordinates. It goes to every ship. And... uh, just click on any of them. Click on uh, the Ironsides, for instance, off Grand Haven, uh, either on the name or on the map itself, and it'll take you right to that story on the website, and it'll take you to the, uh, co- the coordinate. So uh, it's all right there. So I figured, you know, why recreate all of that? I don't need to make this a book about diving. Uh, there are one or two underwater photos, but, but, you know, really that's not what it's all about. But um, some great stories, and some, it, it really takes you, I think, beyond the wreck to the story of, how it happened, why it happened, and the people that were involved. And that's what I was trying to get at.
1: Well, I think you've gotten to that. If there's one question I could ask you, on your cover, for those in peril, it shows uh, a ship that looks like it's run aground. And uh, in the foreground, there is uh, a rope and a pulley or block system. Did they ferry people in and out off of that ship in that little basket?
2: you know what, that's a breeches buoy, um, breeches meaning breeches, which is pants. Um, right. and they would put, you know, something that looked like a canvas pair of pants in a buoy, um, and literally run it out. They would shoot a, a line out to these stranded vessels with a Lyle gun, which was a small cannon. You'd actually try to, you know, hook it in the rigging. The crew on board would secure it. They would then, um, use that line to tow a larger line over, which would be the, the line that the breeches buoy would run back and forth on. And then the, uh, the original line, the shot line that they they had, would be attached to their end of it, and another one attached back on shore. And they'd literally run guys back and forth one by one. And that photo is so phenomenal. That ship is called the J.R. Sensibar. And I I'm thinking the year was 1934. I don't have it right in front of me. And it was the last documented use of the breeches buoy anywhere on the great lakes. And it was right South of grand Haven, Michigan in Lake Michigan. And, uh, what you see on the cover, the front cover is about two thirds of the photo. Mm-hmm. If you turn the book over, the photo continues on the back and there's another guy over there manning the lines. And I think he's actually a crew member. Um, the photo on the cover of the book, you see a guy with a kind of a sort of a captain's hat on. I'm imagining, although I don't know, he was the captain of the life-saving crew at the time. Uh, would have been the Coast Guard at the time, I guess. And uh, the other guys over on the right-hand side, all dressed alike in, in black or dark, uh, is the life-saving crew. And I'm imagining the other guy that's dressed in white. Doesn't look like he's dressed for the weather. His hair's blowing in the wind. He's got no hat on. He's got to be one of the crew members that originally came over in the breaches buoy. That's, it's, it's such a phenomenal photo that I had to put it on the cover.
1: Oh, and I can understand why. I mean, to, to think about how horrifying that would be to, okay, here's a strip. It's run aground, um, but I've got to get off, and I've got to get in this thing and uh, and go through the surf, because I'm assuming it didn't necessarily keep you out of the surf the whole way, did it? Well, I
2: think the the idea was that it would keep you. uh, They would try to keep you out of the surf. That's why they rigged a uh, uh, like a almost an A-frame scaffold on shore and pulled it pretty taut to the ship. But you know the ship's kind of moving around, right? Um, Maybe not this one because it's a pretty big ship. But any kind of uh, small schooner. Imagine using this on a schooner back in the 1800s with ice and wind and spray and you know just everything. Your hands are freezing and you're. Your feet are freezing, and you know, a lot of times the the people who were helping with the rescue, or maybe some local area residents, would come out and build a big bonfire on the beach while they, these rescues were going on to give the people on the ship a little hope and a little sense that you know, there's warmth waiting for you here. We're coming to get you, and you're not alone. Uh, exactly. I mean, imagine the kind of just heartwarming welcome that that they would get when they finally did get to shore and planted their feet on that wet sand or maybe on that ice but uh, that photo just blew me away the minute I saw it and uh, I called the Grand Haven Tribune and I said uh, the newspaper there and I said do you have the original of that photo and they said sure would you like to use it (laughs) so of course I did and it's on the cover that's great you know but but you, you describe that story and I'm just thinking in my mind you know, we're spoiled by technology now. So that ship comes aground, you know, there has to be some sort of response. So right. uh, they, they didn't necessarily have radio. So somebody had to notice the weather was bad, notice the ship's there, get this crew out there. And then in that one, that one story you said where they had everybody linking hands. I mean, I can just imagine a, a, a picture going through my mind of somebody running through the downtown area knocking on doors saying, hey, we need everybody out to, to help. You know, maybe they were like like the fire alarm or, or something that they would use in the town to arouse everybody to, to support. I'm sure every community had its own um, way of doing it, but uh, you're probably close to the truth. And, you know, the sense of bar, the, the one with the picture there of the uh, uh, of the breaches buoy was a couple miles south of the harbor from what I understand. So it's a, a, not so much a desolate area now because there are some million dollar homes along there, but... I would imagine back in the 1930s, it was uh, uh, you know probably a little more desolate than it is now. And sometimes in these uh, oh, breaches, buoys, or even the, the life car, as they called them, which was another invention that uh, was sort of like an enclosed aluminum type of lifeboat that they would sling along on the same kind of uh, rope contraption, and they would actually uh, pull it back and forth, but you'd be able to put two or three people in. Uh, but they had to get it there. And, you know, sometimes those things would weigh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds, would be rolling it along on these carts with big wheels on sandy beaches and over rocks. And, you know, you think about how easy it is today. They would just send a helicopter out there and pluck the guys off. You know, we, we, we think it sounds easy. I'm sure it's an yeah. incredibly dangerous thing to do. But compared to back then, my goodness, we've definitely had the benefits of modern technology to make things safer now you said the britches buoy this is the last documented case did that get replaced by something else you know it really uh they, they began using surf boats uh which were you know originally i think 30 feet or so and most of them are now up in the 50 feet and some of the ocean going ones are about 80 feet these are self-righting uh boats that they used to get out to some of these wrecks but these things don't happen very often anymore um you know, when's the last time you heard of a of a freighter on the Great Lakes grounding somewhere? I mean, it, it really is a rare, rare thing, because of radar, because of uh, uh, radio, uh, weather forecasts. I mean, the ship is just going to delay in port for a while rather than going out and facing, you know, 20 foot waves. So, you know, technology uh, in all cases has uh, has really improved, uh, whether it's the navigation or whether it's uh, communication. Um, it's, it's just a lot safer than it used to be, although still a very dangerous job. Absolutely amazing. So, uh, you, you said you had 15 years at least in putting this book together. When did it finally get to the point you said, now I'm ready uh, uh, to put the, to, to finish this and polish it off? Well, in all honesty, the idea of making it into a book was, was only a couple of years ago, You know, about two years ago. My friend Valerie Van Heest published her book called Icebound, um, the story of young George Sheldon and the SS Michigan, which is a great story written for young readers. Uh, if you've got any, uh, I'd say, you know, 9 to 15-year-olds in the family especially, but a great book even for adults um, who are interested in this kind of thing or you want to get them interested, uh, go get them a book called Icebound by Valerie Van Heest. Um, I saw her do it and I, I saw the pitfalls and the things she learned. And, and I said, you know, I could take this stuff and probably turn it into a book too. And in the meantime, she's written a second book along with Bill Lafferty. Um, and it's called Buck, uh, Buckets and Belts, the evolution of the Great Lakes self unloader. And it's the whole, I mean, this is a wow book. This is a boat nerd book, um, that, uh, everybody who's into, uh, you know, boat watching and all the big thousand footers needs to. To, uh, to get and uh and belts uh, was her second book, which came out last year. And I was still working on, on putting this together. And uh, I I served here in Holland uh, for 27 years on the local city council. I was an elected city councilman. And I decided not to run for re-election last year. So in November, uh, I had a lot of time on my hands. And uh, even though I work for a living, I have another full-time job. Um, I uh, decided that I had no more excuses that I was going to bring this thing to fruition. And all through November and December, I completed it and uh, had it edited and, you know, put it in final design form. Valerie helped me work on that all during January. And it's at the printer right now. And we should have it uh, probably well before March one, knock on wood. Well, that's, that's going to be good. Uh, uh, Have you had a chance to see an advanced copy yet or are you just, yeah you know, proofs. I, uh, I have a copy of it right here that has the uh, you know the sign off sheet on the front instead of a cover where I'm uh, I signed off on it to uh, approve it for printing, and uh, it looks pretty good. I wasn't real happy with the photos at first, but uh, they look a lot better now, um, and I'm just excited about it. It's 136 pages. It's got uh, about 50 different photographs in it and uh, the the retail price is 17.95 which uh, isn't the cheapest but um, it's uh, you know i think a a mid-level price that people uh, hopefully can afford even in this economy the neat thing i'm doing uh, right now is um, if you go to my website which is craigrich.net c-r-a-i-g-r-i-c-h dot net and you order it there using paypal um, I'm covering the shipping. So $17.95, and it's shipped to you for free. And uh, if you want to, I'll sign it. In fact, I'll probably sign all of those that are pre-purchased like that. And that's going to be uh, on the website like that at that lower price uh, with all the shipping included uh, right up until the time that it starts appearing in the bookstores. And then I don't really want to compete too much with the bookstores um, and the libraries and so on, so we'll back off a little bit. But anybody who's interested can go buy it uh, right now. Yep, and we'll have a link in the show notes so people can – can get out there and order it. Uh, I appreciate that. We, we've lost Jim for a moment. He's had a little technical technical problems. So, uh, what's your your next project? You said you had some, a couple ideas. You're willing to share any of those? You know, it's funny because I'm starting to get kind of like, yeah, I don't really want to say because yeah. else might. <laughs> well,
3: I, I definitely understand that. Well, as far as my next project, I I can identify at least where. Uh, some projects don't really need to be written. Um, just south of us here in the Holland area, we have uh, Saugatuck. And author Kit Lane has put together a couple of uh, nice books. Some of them uh, very early on. She just did some pamphlet-style books, but then wrote a couple of great books on the shipwrecks of the Saugatuck area. And then Bob Meyer, um, Robert Meyer, is down in the uh, St. Joe Benton Harbor area, he has written The Shipwrecks of Berrien County. And uh, so that area has been covered very, very well, and, uh, and anybody who's interested in the uh, stories of uh, shipwrecks in that area should, should get out and purchase that book, too. And then my friend uh, Brendan Baylot has uh, written a book that's not yet published, but he's uh, working on it in the uh, it's uh, shipwrecks of the Oceana County area, um, north of Muskegon, up around Ludington. So there are a couple of different holes that uh, I think somebody needs to write some books about, and uh, maybe I will. I'm uh, taking a look at a couple of those. and also interested in writing a uh, a book on one of the local uh, shipping companies that uh, was active in the late 1800s early 1900s that I don't, don't think anybody has ever written a book about so i'm stewing that around in my brain a little bit and we'll see if uh, see if anything develops
0: yeah i have read both uh you know some elaine's books and also bob myers he's he's just down the road here so uh, those, those are some excellent titles
3: well, and I hope someday somebody might say that about this book. I, uh, uh like I said, I'm no professional. I, uh, I, I work for a newspaper for a living, but I'm in the advertising sales side, so I'm not in the editorial side. am not a professional writer at all. Uh, spent a lot of years in radio and like to think I can communicate, but, uh, putting it down in writing and have it be something that's readable and accurate and enjoyable and, uh, That people will actually, uh, uh, you know, want to buy and own and give it as gifts and so on is is a whole different thing. And and then learning how to market it, um, you know, through shows like this and through uh, these days, you know, luckily we've got things like Facebook and Twitter and all the other ways that you can get the word out about things uh, without going totally broke. So uh, it's kind of a new experience and I'm really enjoying it.
0: It has been a, a new experience. And I think, you know, kind of the same thing with this podcasting. You know, by no means Jim and I are not uh, professional uh, media people or, or, or publishers, but uh, we, we sure had a time with this. And we're, we're hoping that we can infect other people the love for scuba diving that we have and, uh, you know, bring on great guests like yourself to, to come and talk about diving. Now, since it is a diving show, how many of these uh, wrecks have you actually been able to dive on?
3: Well, um, a lot of the stories in the book are, uh, ships that, you know, either burned at the dock or, uh, wrecked and were, were hauled away or were salvaged to uh, live on and that kind of thing. Um, and I'm a little bit, I'm kind of disappointed that, you know, here I am writing about the SS Michigan and some of the other deep tech wrecks, and I'm really not certified to go, uh, to go dive them at all. It's uh, another step in my diving career that I'd like to take. I certainly own all the equipment, um, you know, and it's just a matter of dropping that extra couple thousand dollars to, <laughs> to take all the <laughs> the technical diving lessons, and that's a big step. It's something I decided to put off a few years ago, and um, you know maybe it's time to do it. I'll have to give that some more thought too. But certainly the Ironsides and some of the the near shore wrecks around the area. Um, but interesting thing about Ottawa County, as I said, is that a lot of the shipwrecks uh, that sailed away went out and sank in deep water. So they're more technical dives. So uh, there aren't a lot of local, uh, you know, close-in dives here in the Ottawa County area. And the ones we have are, you know, kind of beat up and, and not real exciting. So I hate to say that because I love to promote tourism here. But um, there's probably some better wrecks out off of South Haven, St. Joe. Um, and uh, Saugatuck than there are right off of Holland, unless you're a tech diver. Now, as you go further north, um, you know, it gets a little bit better. Uh, ships off the Muskegon area, uh, there's quite a number there, the, you know, the state of Michigan and a few other ships that uh, that are easily accessible and, uh, and not bad dives. Some of them are uh, real beginner dives, too. They're only in uh, 15 to 30 feet of water. Maybe that's another book.
0: It sounds like it. <laughs> Uh, it's it's great uh, i imagine it's gotta be great getting out there and looking for material
3: yeah it really is and there's nothing like you know having dove some of these wrecks and specifically cutting my teeth on the iron sides when i got back into diving in 1988 when doug welsh and i started diving that in the late 80s uh the entire stern of that vessel was intact you could penetrate um you could go down and look at the you know all the steering mechanism there was a, a capstan down there and just all kinds of gear and in the mid 90s the entire stern of that missile collapsed and uh, i'm just glad i wasn't there when it happened um but what we saw and i you know i never would have believed this if i hadn't kind of developed the theory in my own brain um and i'll tell you a short story we had a uh, uh, a meeting on Wednesday night, this is many years ago, and Doug and I had dove the Ironsides on Sunday. We had a meeting on Wednesday night, and at that meeting, there was this hellacious storm, uh, high winds and huge waves, and uh, actually a, a six foot, uh, six foot diameter tree uh, got blown down at the place we were having the meeting, and uh, so a terrible storm. Doug and I went and dove the Ironsides again the following Sunday, and major damage had been done to that shipwreck 120 feet deep off grand haven michigan because of a storm and i never would have thought that that could happen but i witnessed it with my own eyes that that the surge from a storm on the surface can impact a wreck that deep
0: yeah i know my grandfather always talked about the the lake and the the actions that that happened he said if you ever thought that you understood or control it, you're a fool. So uh, it's a, it's amazing. There's a lot more power than we can necessarily comprehend. And I tell you what, we
3: are living, I think, in the halcyon days, not to use a, a equipment manufacturer's name, but the uh, we are living in the glory days of shipwreck diving right now. We're in that period, that beautiful period between having these things, the wood ones at least, destroyed rotting away and gone which most of them will be in another 50 or 100 years and you know having the ships that sank 100 years ago because there was no shipping on the great lakes 100 more than 150 170 years ago it really started with with any kind of gusto back in the 1830s 1840s even here in in west michigan so we're living a time period right now when we've got to go down And look at these ships and document them and discover them before they're gone. The wood ships, we always say, oh, the fresh water and the cold and the, you know, the no worms or anything like they have out in the ocean. These things will last forever. Well, they're not going to last forever, folks. Let me tell you, they are slowly disappearing before our very eyes. And we better find them. We better document them. And we better enjoy them while we can because our, you know, maybe our kids, maybe even our grandkids. But I bet our great grandkids aren't going to find too many wooden shipwrecks left on the Great Lakes
0: i agree i i think we're it, it's there's there's never going to be a better time to look now and they're they're not going to get in any better condition there's just more opportunities for storms like you had to continue to damage them and then we we talked about the invasive species you know the zebra mussels and and such that you know those those aren't helping either
3: yeah it's a whole different world to dive even today than it was back in 1988 when i got back into it because uh we never saw zebra mussels back then it was a phenomena of the 1990s and you know god bless them if they've cleared the water up but um, you know it used to be you dove the iron sides especially here we'd almost you know we might as well put duct tape on our masks because we weren't seeing anything we were feeling our way around you might have two to three feet of visibility and a hoop and holler about it because it was so wonderful and now you can see 30 feet but what do you see zebra mussels
1: Right. And, uh, and you know, I understand that it's not so much that they deteriorated it themselves. It's the additional weight that brings down uh, these wooden vessels. Is that correct? I mean, it's the weight that that destroys. It's the buildup.
3: That's a big part of it. I understand it's uh, the weight. And uh, and I think simply age is really what's going to be impacting right. these wooden these wooden vessels and anything, you know, anything in 50 feet of water or less is subject to ice, uh, scouring and, 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 scraping it and destroying it. Uh, because if you see 10 feet of ice on top of the, the water, you know how much is underwater. And we've got the prevailing winds here in Lake Michigan that push everything up on our side of the lake. So any short shore wrecks or anything that's, you know, even wrecks like the, uh, Verano, which was a, uh, you know, a, a kind of a motor vessel yacht that sank in 1947 off of, of uh, uh, area between Saugatuck and South Haven, uh, it's in 50 feet of water, and it hits a different dive every year uh, because the ice just comes in and the waves come in and just uh, tear it to pieces, and there's there's not much left. Every now and then something pops up out of the sand again, but next year it'll be gone.
0: Right. Yeah, that, that sand we have here. <laughs> so, some, year, some years the, I, I've heard stories where you, you can see the wreck clearly, and the next year there's only a couple pieces sticking up. You know, and the interesting thing about that is we have a, one of our members, uh,
3: he's a, a pretty prolific wreck hunter and he doesn't own a, a mask even, uh, maybe a mask now, but, uh, he literally floats on an inner tube, um, off some of the parks up around Oceana County. And he's found a couple of shipwrecks that way, just goes out in six or eight feet of water and, you know, floats around with his dog. And by gosh, if he hasn't discovered a couple of shipwrecks, uh, the Helen and the Daisy Day are two of them that we chalk up to him because he, uh, he was out there floating around looking, and uh, and he came across them, and uh, we've been able to go up and document them, um, you know, thanks to this guy.
1: Wow. So say, say he's out floating in his inner tube, and he's catching some sun, and he finds a, a, a spar or a, a rib sticking up out of the sand. How can you conclusively identify that ship um, and put it with a, an owner with a name with, a, with a history, how can you do that?
3: Well, that's where the research comes in. And, uh, we've got a pretty good database of, of, uh, stuff on our website that we, we know we're looking for so that when we, when we actually do have somebody call us and say, Hey, you know, something new has popped out of the sand or the beach, or we had a, a couple of instances over the last few years where a fisherman would come to us and say, you know, I've got this target. It's like 200 feet long and it's 30 feet off the bottom. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking it might be the Andaste. In this case, it turned out to be a barge. But you know, they call us, and, uh, you know, we'll go out there and we'll side-scan it. We'll send divers down if possible, uh, gather all the information we can, document it through video, through still photography. We've got some great tech divers to do the deep stuff for us. Uh, divers Jeff Voss from Holland and uh, 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 Bob Underhill, who I mentioned earlier from the uh, Kalamazoo area, are both uh, into uh, – uh, photography and uh uh you know they just do a great job for us and uh you know we couldn't possibly do any of these um these documentations without these guys especially on the deep wrecks because um at least I don't dive that deep a couple other members of our uh, immediate group do but uh you know I don't get down that deep and then Todd White out of Saugatuck is the third guy who's got a uh, a boat that uh, he takes out. And uh, these guys dive deep wrecks every weekend throughout the Great Lakes and uh, do a phenomenal job for us with the documentation.
1: So it's literally a team effort. Um, you know, you've got to do the research and you, you've you already got an idea what's, what's in an area well before someone comes up, say they get a hit on their sonar or on their fish finder or something. Uh, you guys have already got an idea. Okay, well, we could be looking at this or this or this, right?
3: We usually have yeah two or three or four options, perhaps. Um, we have teamed up the last couple of years with author Clive Kussler, um, who has written a lot of great books over the years, like 40 or 50 of them. And mm-hmm. Clive has sent his team up to the Great Lakes to work with us uh, every year. In fact, they're coming back again this year. Um, and... Ralph Wilbanks is the the leader of that team. He's the guy who found the uh, CSS Hunley, the Confederate submarine from the Civil War, off the uh, shores of South Carolina back in the mid-90s. So he's got a pretty good reputation. These guys have already found for us, uh, for MSRA, uh, gosh, I don't even know if it's six or seven different shipwrecks, I think, including a couple of schooners last year that we have finally identified and we'll be presenting those findings, uh, in a new video we have called A Tale of Two Schooners, both at the Ghost Ships Festival in Milwaukee this, uh, March and also at our own show, which we do every year here in Holland. We do a shipwreck show this year. It's on Saturday, April 24th. We did that at the Knickerbocker Theater, which is right downtown in Holland, an old historic theater, and it's like 15 bucks to get in, 12.50 if you get your tickets early. There's a little commercial. Yeah, um, right. Information, information, again, on our website, and uh, we're going to identify what those two uh, schooners are that are now going to be, and then we'll release the numbers right after that, too, and it'll be uh, two more dive locations off the uh, Sagatuck and uh, South Haven areas.
1: Very cool. That's new bits of history that have popped up, huh?
3: Yeah, and the, the lengths that we went through, specifically uh, Valerie Van Heest went through in in getting a permit from the state to collect a sample from one of these ships, to take it to a laboratory to identify what this material might be, which then proved the the name of the ship, and we already knew the story about how it went down. And the story is actually on our website, but I don't think we've identified on the website which ship it is yet that we found, but... Uh, so you can go look at that and try to figure it out yourself.
0: <laughs> yep. Just stay tuned
1: for further details, huh?
0: Yeah. Now, now you, you said the permitting. has. I understand that that process there is to protect the, the wrecks and to keep people from uh, illegally salvaging them or, or taking items off. But has it gone too much the other way? I mean, if she had to jump through so many hoops just to take a sample?
3: Well, we've got a really good reputation and, and relationship with the state of Michigan, so it wasn't too bad for us. Uh, I think anybody else would probably have even uh, harder time with it. Um, but you know what? It's it's interesting. We were just talking about this today that in almost every instance where somebody has gone to court and sued for ownership of a ship or a vessel that they've they've discovered, they've actually been granted that right. So, you know, I... I I don't know why anybody would fight so hard for wet wood, but um, because in the end, it really does belong to to all of us, I guess. It is history, and if the original insurance company signed off on it and gave up the rights, which they didn't do on a couple of ships, and that's why they're into private ownership, um, then, yeah, we should all be able to dive them. But uh, I like the protection. I've only ever taken one thing off a shipwreck in my life, and uh, I'm looking at it right now. It's an old rusty um, nail, kind of a spike, about uh, five inches long that took a gash out of my forehead, so I thought it owed me. And that was <laughs> and that was before the current uh, law was passed in 1987, the aboriginal, whatever it's called, law that says you can't take anything off of a shipwreck. So, uh, um, you know, it was way back when. But, uh, you know, it won't be there the next time. It won't be there for the next diver. It won't be there for my children or my grandchildren who might want to see it. And, you know, the way I look at it, to take something off a shipwreck, is a lot like walking into your local museum and just taking something off the shelf or off the wall and taking it home, um, it's just not right.
0: You mentioned that, and I was just uh, last night looking at the the wrecked Barney, which uh, you know Bob Sweeney had talked about. Uh, he dove on, and mm-hmm. uh, you look at the the original pictures, which on the website were there taken about 98, 99, and there was uh, some stools and. Some bottles and jugs, and it was—it was actually an intact and rigged ship. Of course, the ropes and sails are gone, but you know, pretty much everything was the way it was when it went down, and it wasn't more than three or four years later, and all that stuff was gone.
3: Yeah, and that's how it used to be. And I think you know, there's there's still a, a bunch of the older guys who remember those days and who who you know who dove back in the '50s, '60s, and '70s when they were making their own wetsuits and and you know formulating their own gear and these, those guys were the pioneers and, and that's, that's how it was done. I mean, you found something, it was yours, you kept it secret, you took everything you could off of it and put it in your den and your basement and your garage and your living room and maybe you sold a few things and, you know, you could go up north 20 years ago to any, uh, antique shop and buy a coffee table made out of, you know, a hatch cover and, you can't do that anymore. It's uh, it's illegal to sell them. It's almost like trying to sell ivory. Yeah. Um, if you've got one, you better keep it and you better document that you <laughs> that you bought it before the uh, before the law went into place because uh, you know somebody might come knocking someday.
0: Yeah. Well, it's all about protecting it and then letting us have something we can dive on later on. But you know we, we can't stress enough that if you want to get out and see these wrecks, there's no better time than the present to get out and get wet in them.
3: And I tell you what, there's some dive shops that, um, uh, especially these days, um, they would love to have you walk in the door because most of them for, you know, I, I don't know what the prices are where you are, but you know, if you've got 99 bucks, you can learn to dive at most dive shops these days. And obviously they're hoping that you'll accept that discount and all their work that they put into bringing you to that level and, uh, maybe spend some money with them on gear and take a few trips with them or whatever. But these guys could use some business. So, uh. You know, support your local dive shop and uh, try not to buy too much stuff online. You know, head on down to your local brick-and-mortar dive shop and support those guys because they're going to be going out of business, too, in this economy if we don't all do that.
0: Yeah, we definitely do. And, you know, one of the things we've been trying to encourage, uh, you know, we've got the Mud Club divers that that we're affiliated with that has been a great resource for getting out and diving every week, but is just uh, what we see up here in Michigan is I would, I'd, I'd like to see official numbers but my guess is it's got to be about eighty percent of the people who are certified never even dive in this area
3: yeah you're right they get certified they take a trip somewhere um, they usually have a bad experience <laughs> and half of them I think half of them don't ever get in the water again and you're right probably eighty percent of them mostly dive you know on their once a year trip down to Florida the Bahamas Mexico or wherever Um you know you have to be pretty crazy to do what most of us do and i don't dive as much in the winter as i used to i used to ice dive you know every weekend go out and jump in the holland channel on new year's day and all that crazy stuff and you know get my face on the front of the newspaper and i, I guess i've mellowed and <laughs> maybe gotten smarter i don't know <laughs> well, lazier or something
0: well, we, we must have taken your place because we were up there in holland this this new year's and, and did that dive and that's uh, great. Uh, but what I, what I, you know, we, we dive in the summer and then we dive in the winter. And I wish we could have the warmer water of the summer with the clarity that we've had in the winter. And that would be perfect.
3: Yeah, it really would be. And, uh, you know, the neat thing is that we've got pretty good visibility year round these days. And, uh, I mean, used to be we had to go out even in the 80s, the late 80s. We used to have to go out in October and early November after the sort of the algae Bloom was gone off the lakes, and uh, we could actually get a little bit of visibility on wrecks like the Ironsides and up at the Straits, some of the great wrecks up there. And uh, these days, I mean, I've had 100 feet visibility. diving the uh, Ann Arbor uh, 5 off of uh, the South Haven area, and, uh, you know, you can literally see off 100 feet in any direction, and it's like, holy cow, this is like the Caribbean. Wow.
0: Looking forward to that. You ready, Jim? You ready to get out there? Yeah. 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 So uh so yeah, my
3: gear's looking pretty cold out there in the garage right now. But uh <laughs> I'm I'm glad it's only it getting cold and not me. You guys can do the ice diving anymore. You're the next generation. I think I'm retired from ice diving.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, we're having fun, uh well while we go ahead and cover the news real quick. We we've got a few articles and then we'll slip back and talk about this last week's dive. Uh in the news here we've got uh uh, Norfolk Shipyard is suing Key West over a sunken ship. And I, I thought this one was interesting. Uh, it, uh, apparently, uh, they had uh, been paid, or I, I guess not paid. They wouldn't be upset if they had been. Uh, and it's, it was uh, the shipyard had uh, sunk the Hoyt S. Vandenberg. And uh, you know it was like what a lot of the, the, they're doing over uh, on the East Coast where they're making these artificial reefs, but also for economic stimulus. And uh, they're suing Key West for $1 million that said that they were owed for cleaning up the Vandenberg for scuttling. So uh, they spent, uh, according to the article, uh, Key West and the state of Florida spent 10 years raising uh, money for obtaining, cleaning, towing, and finally sinking the Vandenberg. Uh, Colona's got the contract to, to clean a ship, but legal dispute over failed payments to the shipyard and its con- subcontractors' wages for a year in federal court. So uh, when it was the, finished, the shipyard says it was still owed 1.6 million, and uh, the organization uh, received 677,000 from the auction. So you know, there's a little bit of a gap there, about one million dollars. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. uh now jim did you did you get to watch nova i wanted to watch the that they had a show this uh this week on extreme cave diving uh but uh, it, it lost out to uh, ncis and the biggest loser in this household i can only, only record two shows so
1: uh, oh sorry yeah. no I, I didn't um but i i do like watching the footage of some of those guys that do the deep penetration on the caves and you know pulling off their gear and and squirming through the holes i don't know that i'll ever get to the point where i'd be comfortable doing that
0: well you're you're Um, much closer to being able to do that than i am i (laughs) uh you know i i wouldn't mind trying it but i wouldn't like to get stuck
1: no it it'd be more than just embarrassing um it would have a real dark side to that. And it, it, those guys really do. They train and train and train. Um, so they're not just jumping out
0: there and doing it on their first, first go around at it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm keeping my eyes out. Hopefully it comes back on. I can record it, but uh, we'll post, we'll post a couple uh, links to some articles on it. Uh, but what was interesting as I read through the article is, is these blue holes uh, that they're calling, which is, is basically collapsed caves is, is just that anything that falls into stays there. So, uh, in one in one case, they had a skull that was, you know, ten thousand years old. So, you know, just something that, you know, it's like a time capsule, and and that's also part of what uh, what makes the risk.
1: hmm
0: Now, what location
1: were they at? Does it say
0: uh, Bahamas, I believe? Uh, yeah, in the U.S. Uh, yeah, the Blue Holes of the Bahamas is where they were at. Uh, it was only a one hour show, and, and when you went and looked at all the preparation and how much video they did and how many people they had for only an hour, it's, it's amazing. You know, may, maybe they got some extra material and they'll make something else longer, but I don't know how they were able to squeeze all that into an hour. Uh, and then uh, Google launches uh, their, their Google Ocean showcase, uh, it, it's uh, something that's in addition to the Google Earth plugin. And it's uh, featuring, it looks like they partnered with National Geographic, uh, and they've got some tours of the ocean. So that's something I'm going to probably load up on my computer and take a peek at. Mm -hmm. And then anybody who's been on Twitter the last two days can't miss this next one, which is the uh, two scuba divers uh, chasing the Google van. Did you see that one, Jim?
1: I've been on Twitter, but I didn't see that oh, one come on
0: you you just aren't following the right people if you know you find i guess them, I'm not you gotta follow like old pirate and scuba obsessed, and you'd be able you'd be getting that stuff <laughs> so uh, they were chasing the van yeah i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna paste in this 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 picture here to the you know i will have a link on the show notes for anybody who wants to go and see it the you know, months from now, you, you, nobody will remember it. But you know, if they say everybody gets 15 minutes of fame. These guys have had about an, about a week. Uh, and uh, as the story goes, uh, they were friends with the actual the Google driver. Uh, so, uh, let's see here. Come on, load up. Yep. So there's just uh, they call gangsters. Uh, scuba gear. We're stalking the uh, Street View car. So here it is. They're, they're sitting in chairs, just relaxing and it goes by. Then as it went by, they, they chased it down the street, uh, with pitchforks. (laughs) Oh, come on here. Scroll.
1: Craig, that didn't happen up by in your neck of the woods, did it?
3: You know, I don't think so. I'll, you know, ironically, a friend of mine who, uh, is a real techie from way back, um, was standing in his driveway when the Google van went by a couple of years ago and did the Holland area. So he is forever, I don't know about forever, but until the next time they do Holland, he is immortalized, standing in his driveway with his arms out in this, what the (laughs) kind of expression. (laughs) What is this He was right there when the Google van went by and got his picture on the map. So I said, well, you're lucky they caught you there. (laughs) Right. And not not at some of the places other people have been caught.
1: Uh, oh yeah, they've uh, they've got some big stories. That's a that's a session all its own there. Some of the things people have been uh, caught in.
3: Well, you know, the thing about Google that's that's really cool is that it's turned people who have never scuba dived in their lives into wreck hunters because you can literally take a tour. I mean, just go on to Google Earth or um, you know, Google Maps and get the Nice close-up view of, you know, somewhere between, you know, shoreline and maybe a 1,000 feet out and look for shipwrecks. I mean, they're there. People call me all the time and say, hey, I just saw something on Google Maps. It's a dark spot. looks like it's about 200 feet long off of so-and-so. And And by golly, you know, we've got them on our list of targets we're going to have to go check out. They're out in 10 or 15 feet of water so that, you know, you can see them from a satellite image. And it's an amazing thing. You can literally be, you know, a 90-year-old shut-in and be shipwreck hunting from the comfort of your own, you know, den at home with a computer. Right. It's pretty cool. Yep.
1: It is. Um, to to have all the – and you were talking about the golden age, the, you know, that this is the time. Yeah. Um, and all the discoveries that you guys are, are anticipating in the near future, as the technology grows, you know, we're talking about some of the gear that the Custler team brings in and, um, you know, that you guys have got at your disposal, and that stuff is just going to blossom here in the near future. Um, what possibilities there are going to be. Um, it's, it really kind of takes your breath away as you think about that sort of thing very cool
0: yeah well you
3: know and we're sitting there on the on the search boat going three miles an hour back and forth and back and forth for sometimes 24 hours at a time you know we talk about things like that and we talk about you know we bet the military has the technology from a satellite somewhere. I mean, after all the years of trying to develop anti-submarine warfare, you know they've oh, got to have yeah. you know, blue-green radar or something that can look down maybe 100 to 200 feet into the water as if the water weren't there. So we mm-hmm. speculate and we dream that someday that kind of technology might be available to wreck hunters.
0: Well, when you, when you think about it, you look at what Google's done with the Street View, where they're taking this van and running down the road and taking the pictures of the house. They, they've also got, I don't know if you've seen this, that tricycle bike where they're doing the trail view for mountain That's bikers, where they're riding this bike through these mountain trails.
3: That's awesome. I haven't seen that.
0: Yeah, a, a friend of mine in Seattle uh, actually took a picture of it and posted it on Facebook. And, and so they're, they're mapping these trails. I'm thinking, you know, what's to say that Google couldn't do that with boats? You know, you could do river view. You know, and you yeah, put, exactly. put some side scan sonar, uh, get some depth readings, you, you you feed it in live and you could have that. And also where, where I think some of this would be interesting with some of this Google Earth is just the ability to see change over time. If they do this every year and then if they have some way to where, you know, I take my pictures of a wreck and I post them on a site so you get the angles of maybe what it looks like in March and somebody does it in June, you could kind of have, you know, where you have the... Your dimensions that you're moving through physically, you also add that time element as dimension where you could look at the same point and then maybe see how it's changed photographically over time. Uh, that just seems like that'd be amazing.
3: Well, I'll tell you what, if we had the kind of visibility we have now back in the late 80s, um, that's the kind of thing that could have been done with the Ironsides where literally you could go there even once a year, take a, a great picture of the stern of that vessel and document in almost a time lapse sort of way how it's fallen apart over the the last 15 to 20 years now and um, you know we just didn't have the visibility back then to stand back 30 feet and take a picture of anything
1: It, it would be it would kind of be disheartening i think because as you think of a shipwreck before i got into paying attention to them you thought once it's down it kind of stays there i understand the rotting and i understand the that sort of thing but to see if you were to do a time lapse and kind of speed through it and then especially the time you know through that storm where uh you know the collapses a bit and and um it would just make it all that more real that you, if you want to see them, you've got to do it at your next opportunity because it 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 won't be there forever.
3: Yeah, and there are some cameras uh, that have been stationed on some of the wrecks off of Thunder Bay now, put in by the uh, uh, the National Marine Sanctuary folks. I don't know if they're doing any kind of uh, time lapse and uh, whether they've got them on the wood wrecks or not, but uh, that'd be a great little project. I wonder if I can get a grant for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you could. <laughs> Who knows? Seems like a, a better a better uh, way to spend money than what I've heard coming out lately.
0: Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a whole other podcast right there. Uh, now, now looking at those 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 divers, and I know you haven't seen the pictures, but the one thing I, you know, I noticed is that they were actually wearing dry suits.
3: <laughs> I hope they weren't wearing fins if they were running.
0: Well, they they were they actually did have fins. Uh, I, I'm I'm not a fin expert, but you know my uneducated guess would be they look like scuba pro fins, mm-hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. the kind of the black fins that they they were, they're were both in dry suits, and and they didn't have tanks, but they did have snorkels. So
3: <laughs> that's great. Uh,
0: yeah, uh, the comments they had is they said it was meant and fun, uh, but we never imagined that we get such uh, tremendous attention. Uh, it was Paul who suggested that we should wear the wetsuits. Uh, and it says it was not done to hurt anyone. It was just an innocent joke. So it's almost like the, they're getting some heat up there.
3: That's great. Where was that? Do you know?
0: That was in Norway.
3: Uh, oh, the, okay.
0: The, the town is uh, Bergen.
3: Wow, the crazy Norwegians.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so that's it for the news. Uh, uh, Jim and I are planning on heading up to uh, our world underwater. Over the Donald E. Stevens Convention Center in Rosemont, Illinois, uh, not this Saturday, but the following Saturday. Now, this last right. Saturday, we traveled up to Martin, Michigan, and we dove in Lake 16. Right. Have you ever had a chance to dive there, Craig?
3: Always a treat. Huh? Lake 16. I spent many, many dives there, and uh, in fact, there's a lot of junk down there that <laughs> that's uh, they've got an obstacle course. Uh, Uh, It's a great training lake, really. It's a great training lake for anybody who uh, uh, is trying to get their buoyancy down. There's a platform and just all kinds of stuff in Lake 16. So, uh, highly recommended.
0: Yeah, exactly. And we, Jim and I had not been there. You know, we've we've dove in Gilboa, and it seems like probably our last 10, 15 dives have all been, you know, river dives or some of these shallow lakes around here this winter. So, it was actually nice to. getting a lake that had a little bit of depth so we could you know even though we've been diving every week i, I felt a little rusty in my buoyancy
3: right i've hit 90 feet in uh in lake 16 um that's the deepest i've ever found
1: that's uh, that's about what i had heard too um yeah. and that's that's plenty deep to to get ready for out on the big lake
0: yeah it, it It was. A, we had. A, we had a great day. It was a nice sunny day. We, we drove up there. We went out there on on the ice, and you know we spent a little bit of time. Uh, we had uh, Kurt and Bob were there, and they you know they've been there many times. You know Kurt's got at least 50, 60 dives on that lake, he said. And so that we we tr- what we to do is we wanted to have the hole go right above the platform. So you know broke out the chainsaws, did a couple pilot holes. There's a there's a pile of wood there. Uh, we're guessing that was put there by somebody a few weeks earlier diving to, to mark a spot. But uh, we got, we got some great pictures. Uh, uh, we got them linked on the website. If you go to scubaobsessed.com and then link over to the Mud Club website, you can see uh, uh, Jim with his uh, face in the hole trying to see if he can spot the platform.
3: Well, let me tell you how not to ice dive in Lake 16. Doug Welsh and I, back when we were young and brash, uh, we would go do it with just the two of us. And we would both dive at the same time. And, uh, I would not recommend that to anybody, although we lived through it. Um, Doug had rigged up an ingenious uh, situation. We'd cut the, you know, the big old triangular hole and we'd shove the, the ice chunk up underneath it. And then about 15 feet back from the hole, he would drive a, um, about an inch and a quarter steel rod that he, uh, had a, 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 small hole drilled through the lower end and he put a, like a cotter pin through it. And, um, secure the line that way, and we both go down diving at the same time, um, hoping that, you know, none of the, the nasty snowmobilers that lives on that lake would come over and pull the <laughs> pull the stake out. <laughs> just, I mean, when I mean, you think about how stupid that was and how we lived through it, it's just an amazing thing, but uh, we always did. But uh, it always takes five guys at least to do a real good ice dive, and, and nobody should ever do it with less.
1: Yeah, Yeah. And you were talking about that just a couple of weeks ago. There was a story from a a young guy up north in uh, Canada somewhere that uh, it turned tragic. uh, And, you know, looking back in hindsight, coulda, shoulda, woulda, um, the end result was that uh, he perished uh, a bad way to go. It's serious stuff and
0: and definitely have to be careful. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the visibility, not having been there before, but we had heard that it was a – it's a dark cold lake, even the summer. That's true. Uh, and, but it, it was clear. I mean, you we literally, we were in very well, good, but yeah, right there at that platform. I think it's 41, 42 feet deep. And, you know, as soon as you got to where you weren't seeing the glare of the sun, you could see all the way down to the bottom.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, Excellent. And, uh, it, it was, it was actually warmer than the river dive I had done the the week before the the river dive was 33 and uh, I think I measured 37 on the computer. That's We're, what mine registered also. Yeah, 37. So uh, now we we did it in wetsuit and you know I I did upgrade I did have some uh, uh, a little bit better you know I, I got rid of my my female boot and gloves and upgraded to five and a half so. Well, I tell you
3: points. what, I've got an old Poseidon that's, uh, you know, out in the garage, and uh, with that and uh, a couple of tubes of Aquaseal, you might you might get into a dry suit fairly cheap. If you're <laughs> 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 it's it's a little leaky, but if you're about five nine and a little overweight, it might fit you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I can. What a drastic difference! We had a, a couple on the team, Bob and Kirk, were were diving dry, and and three of us were wet. Um, you know, 20 minutes and out for us. And those guys spent 50, 55 minutes in the water and they, you know, their lips were still normal colored when they came out. So, um, what an, what an example of what I want to be, uh, (laughs) to get a dry suit. You'll never go back. I I
3: mean, I have not worn a wetsuit north of, uh, you know, the Bahamas in 15 years. I mean, yeah. e- even in the middle of summer, it's bear sometimes in 80 degree weather on a hot boat trying to get a dry suit on and, you know, explaining to people later that, you know, you basically put a snowmobile suit on and then put a rubber suit over that and stood around in 80 degree weather. Um, but more, I tell you, when you get in the water, it sure feels good.
1: <laughs> I can only imagine. I think that's going to be a, a plan for this coming year. Uh, um, so for next year's ice season uh, that I'm ready to go dry.
0: Um, yeah I, I certainly am going to be looking for getting one Yeah, you know, i have to you know I, I we talked about leasing out a kid and you know maybe selling a horse and you know that <laughs> might be enough to to go and do it well i'll tell you what there's a few uh used ones
3: out there these days in this economy there's guys who are just getting rid of their gear and you know trying to pay the mortgage and you hate to take advantage of somebody else's you know downtime in their life but um you know, you might as well uh, know that it's being put to good use rather than just sitting in someone's basement or garage not getting used.
0: Well, and, and if they need the money, I mean, the you know, better to sell it to a diver than the Hockett.
3: Exactly. And i uh, tell you what, um, mine's custom and a lot of them are, but, uh, you know, a lot of us are shaped about the same. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can find something that'll fit. So uh, check out Craigslist and wherever else you might just find a used dry suit.
0: That's great advice. Uh, so uh, yeah, let's see. Was there anything else memorable about the dive? I mean, you know, we saw the the typewriter and a couple boats that were down there and platform.
1: Yeah, um, didn't uh, nothing too memorable. It was it was safe. Uh, everybody had a good time. So that's it was a successful day. Um, you know, we've got some video that I haven't put together yet. We've got some still pictures that are pretty silly, and the the captions on Facebook are. Um, <laughs> almost embarrassing but uh, <laughs> other than that you know it was a good time and that's what it all all boils down to is that you know you have as good a time out of the water as you do in the water and uh, you know it's it's a good place that's definitely on one that we're going to hit many times this coming year Lake yeah. 16.
3: Yeah well another highlight of that dive is the, the little dome that you can pop your head up into and talk to each other although I wouldn't wouldn't suggest breathing the air that's in there at any time <laughs> uh it's uh, probably it's pretty, pretty foul yeah it really yeah. is uh, a lot of us will bleed a, a regulator into it for a while before we'll pop our head in there and uh, it gets pretty moldy and full of uh you know green junk in the summer but i imagine it was a little more clear when you guys were in there
1: yeah yeah, yeah i saw it i didn't stick my head up in there um but, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm going to for a while.
0: Yeah, we, we just literally ran out of warmth time. Yeah, that platform is
3: nice, though. I mean, if you've got, you know, a new set of doubles or you're trying to break in a new BC or, or anything uh, or switch them from a dry or a wetsuit to a dry suit, that platform is a perfect platform for just getting your buoyancy where you want it. And that's it's at the 15-foot level, I think, which is, you know – right where you want to test your buoyancy to make sure you can make that last uh, decompression stop coming up from a dive or a safety stop and um, you know that platform is invaluable for that kind of training
0: yeah. yeah a great location and as i understand it uh jim can't make it but i'm going to be going back there this saturday so we're going to sneak another one in
1: that'll be good you guys are going to have a pretty good turnout by the sounds of it
0: yeah. um we're, we're, it we're trying to be- Guilt everybody in the club who didn't make it this last time by telling them how great it is. So. I
1: think it'll work. It um, and then we've got Our World Underwater coming up the following weekend. Um, and then the following weekend after that, what's coming up? There's a shipwreck festival or, or show, yep. isn't there?
0: Yeah, Great Lake Shipwreck Festival. That's uh, Saturday, February 27th, and that's at... Uh, oh, gosh. All these names again. Washtenaw,
3: Washtenaw County, yeah.
0: Washtenaw County, College Morris Lawrence Building, and that's over in Ann Arbor, Michigan.
3: That's the uh, Ford Seahorses. Uh, uh, they, they sort of disbanded a few years ago and came back together, and they put on a great show every year.
0: Yeah, they, they're one of the uh, original dive clubs in Michigan, if I've heard right.
3: They really are a bunch of Ford Motor employees and Ford Motor Credit people from way back when. And uh, MSRA is going to have uh, a presentation there. Valerie Van East will be there speaking at uh, at that show. So, uh, yeah.
1: Well, good. And then what's the date of the MSRA show coming up in uh, in Holland again?
3: Well, the Holland show is going to be on April 24th. That's a Saturday night at the Knickerbocker Theater. You can go to our website, michiganshipwrecks.org, and uh, get your tickets there. Uh, before that, though, in in March, just in a couple of weeks, March five and six, I believe, is the weekend for the Ghost Ships Festival in uh, Milwaukee. That's the granddaddy of them all. If you guys haven't been there, oh my gosh, you need to go to Ghost Ships. Um, the guys from Odyssey Marine are going to be there talking about uh, some of the stuff they've done out in the ocean. And uh, MSRA is actually putting on two shows. We're doing a nine in the morning show on Saturday. There goes our party on Friday night. And. Uh, <laughs> And we're also doing, I think, a 5 o'clock show on Saturday. So two different presentations. And that is a, I mean, there's gear for sale. All the shops from the Milwaukee and Chicago areas are there. Uh, probably 15 or 20 multimedia presentations. Seminars on uh, rebreathers and shipwreck hunting and side scan sonar. I mean, it's just a, it's an amazing weekend. I've gone for
0: 10 years solid, I think. I would never miss it. That's great. Sounds
1: like a good time.
0: It really does. Yeah, it's the best. Now, isn't there another one that's going on that weekend, Jim? Is it that, that weekend, or is it a, f- a little bit later on, uh, that, the the Minnesota?
1: Um, no, not to my knowledge.
3: Okay. I think they're all pretty well-coordinated now. They try to stay off each other's toes. Uh, there's even a, a good one in, in Ohio every year, uh, that Ohio... Uh, group puts on, and we've presented there before too, and they all kind of try to stay away from each other. There's typically a flurry of the shows in the spring and another flurry uh, in the fall. Gales of November is in the fall up in, I think that's in Duluth, isn't it? And uh, and several others, and certainly I don't try to make them all, but Ghost Ships is one I
0: just plain never miss. We'll have to see if we can sneak that one in.
3: May awesome.
0: have to convince my parent company I have a meeting I need to go up to. There you go. <laughs> Uh, and then in the uh, you know, kind of last little segment here, and we'll keep it pretty short, but uh, you know we usually like to try, talk about what, you know whatever cool gear we've seen over the week, and uh, you know I think it's part of the 1984 Millennium Apple Promotion Act that we're required by law to actually talk about the iPad. So uh, you know I know I've got an, an iPhone, and uh, Craig, you also have an iPhone, if I've been following your tweets right. I do. Yeah, and then J- Jim went over the dark side and joined the BlackBerry world recently. Yeah, right.
3: <laughs> but, uh... Well, I went the other way. I used to have a BlackBerry for many years. I had a 7100i, which was, uh... uh you know, kind of the, the mainstream for quite a long time. And I went to the iPhone last summer and really have not regretted it at all.
0: You and I did the same thing. I had that 7100i, that uh, Nextel I didn't... You got it. ...gray brick. <laughs> and I think I probably got three years out of that, and you know, as, as as I upgraded the corporation to the iPhone, uh, well, we didn't all go iPhones. Uh, it you know we kind of privileged ourselves and got the iPhones. We were able to justify it, and everybody else went curves. But uh, you, you know, I, I have a love hate relationship with my iPhone. I you know I, I I like the the simplicity and the ease of use of it. Uh, you know, I I don't like being told by Apple what I can and can't do with a device. So, and and I and I I've been a good good guy and i haven't jail broke my phone but uh
3: but you could
0: uh, yeah yeah it, 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 it's available for me the 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 thing is not for any reason that i wouldn't do it i just i just don't have time for the hassle i, ca- I can't you know that's that, that's that's a lot of work you know it's kind of like a shell game you know you jailbreak it, Apple patches it, and you got a new feature you want, and it's you know that, that that's for the, the the kids who have a bunch of time to go mess with it, which I don't. But you know the the apps are definitely handy on it, and they uh, you know uh, you know there are some things for divers on it. There are some some software for divers out there for uh, planning your dives, and uh, also iDiver has a a pressure case for it, the housing underwater housing. That will actually go down to 300 feet. Wow. That'd
3: be awesome. Yeah. Too bad I'm not going to get a 3G signal down there.
0: No, no. Yeah, yeah. The, the cell, the cell signal. Can you hear noise. me now? Yeah. <laughs> well, what was interesting when I was reading on, uh, there's actually a company that's that's working on a module. It's supposed to be out later in this year. That will actually plug into it, and it'll keep track. But what they said what they could do is in the software they would be able you could like say you were a dive instructor, you'd be able to program certain things like if my if the rate of ascent is too fast for my student, when they got up to service the surface, it would actually text message the instructor and say, Hey, here's what they did and here's what you need to talk to them about. So hmm. some some interesting ideas they have it. So I was thinking that, you know, on a lot of these guys doing the deco lines, uh you know they're they're using you know ipods or other mp3 players are we going to be seeing ipad out there i mean are we gonna you know in some of those long you're gonna have uh you know uh, somebody watching a long movie you
3: know blazing you know, it makes, saddles it makes me wonder that uh you know it is kind of big um it's, it's it's bigger than a slate it's bigger than you know uh, most dive computers and, and so on so i'm you know, if you're going to watch a movie, you might as well do it on something the size of an iPhone if you can, you know, plug it in and your battery will last that long. But, yeah, there are a lot of guys who spend 45 minutes at Deco on those tech dives, and uh, they'll they'll do almost anything. They'll read a book, uh, you know, yeah. and some of them have uh, some uh, watertight cases for their whatever kind of unit they've got. But, uh, I, you know, the iPad is a, is a little large. I just don't know if it would catch on in that way.
0: You never know. I
1: kind of hard yeah but you know like you were saying that the the times that they hang i first heard about it i thought you know when i'm underwater i want to hear the regulator i want to hear the you know i want to the water rushing and things like that but if you're hanging there for 45 minutes uh at a stop i can understand why you would want to have something to occupy the time especially if it's pitch black or visibility is you know almost to the end of your mask um there's not much to see or, or or hear i guess and Keep your mind from going off on its own. It would be a good thing to, to watch.
3: Yeah, there's only so much lint you can pick off your dry suit. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's right. <laughs> Studying that rope and your gloves. And,
3: oh, I'd be done. Looking for leaks. Kind yeah, like of oh, yeah. like monkeys picking
0: bugs off each other. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right.
1: Feeling things that aren't there. I think there's a
0: leak. I'm not sure. That'd be bad yeah so uh, that's some of the stuff we have to look forward to as we as we get into uh, you know out of the recreational area into some of the the more tech tech dives so uh, you know any last pitches anybody wants to make before we call this a show
1: um, what was the uh, what was the title of your book again and where can people buy that when it does uh, come out
3: well, the book is called For Those in Peril, Shipwrecks of Ottawa County, Michigan. And the, the name, by the way, For Those in Peril, comes from an old hymn um, that was written in the 1800s by William Whiting over in England. And it's uh, it's the Navy hymn. They, they play it at every naval uh, convocation or service. And the last line is For Those in Peril on the Sea. And it's all about... You know, asking God to calm the seas and take care of people who are, who are spending their lives out there. And I just thought that that felt so good to put it in, as the title of the ship. So for those in peril, Shipwrecks of Ottawa County, uh, it's available on my website, which is uh, Craig Rich.net. And uh, you can also uh, uh, go find it at your local bookstore, although it's going to be a regional interest book. It's going to be, you know, mostly in Western Michigan, I would think sure. If you can find it throughout the rest of the state. I guess that's a good sign. But uh, just go to the website. Uh, if you order it now, it's uh, free shipping. It's seventeen ninety five and no shipping. I'll ship it to you for free. I'll even sign it and all of that. So my first book, and I, uh, frankly, I, f- I appreciate the support and appreciate you guys inviting me to come along tonight.
0: Oh, well, thank you for coming on. We, we definitely appreciate it. And if you or any of the, uh, your organization members have anything they want to come on and, and chat about, we'd love to have them on. Absolutely.
3: Well, we should probably, uh, you know, do a, an update every, you know, six months or once a year or so at least on what Michigan Shipwrecks Research Associates has been up to and some of the ships that we've uh, we've discovered and some of the new dive sites. And uh, we can certainly do that anytime you want to do it. Just give me a holler.
0: Oh, we we sure will. So that's it for this week's episode. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening in. Uh, make sure you hit the website. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, I'm Darren. So thanks and go out and get wet and dive safe.